God has really blessed us this morning that we have so many people who have been suffering with many physical ailments and have been away from us over the past couple of months are all able to be here at the same time this morning. And it's a really great blessing to see so many uh, of you back and all together at the same time. It's really, we thank God for for that wonderful uh, recovery and healing that we see going on here. We are in Revelation chapter 3. We're continuing our Ignite series as we talk about how we can become stronger in our fervor and our zeal for the Lord. And we look at the church of Philadelphia this morning. And one of the things that we have in our lives is a desire to feel secure. Now, all of us want to have a feeling of security. A couple of weeks ago, we had some solicitor come by and try to sell us a home security system. And it's it's appealing because we all want to feel secure from seatbelts to homes and everything that we do in our lives. We want to, to feel safe. And we had talked of that over and a humorous thing happened to us a few days later. Our neighbor directly next door, their home alarm, went off for about two hours straight and all of us are standing outside, neighbors wondering what's going on as we're watching the rapid response of nobody coming to this house that's that's uh, beeping away that you're supposed to have and we realize I don't think the home security system is all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, that's We want security, but we can't always attain it. We can't have the security that we want. We, we think we can have it. We think we can do things in our lives to make it secure. And one of the things that I think we begin to realize is that there's only one thing in this life that gives us true security, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's one of the pictures that's given to this church is that there is great security in Christ. While everything else may be loose and unwound and we we cannot get a, a handle on in this life, with Jesus there is our rock and He is the one who keeps us secure. Notice with me the picture that's given to us in, in verse 7. The description that, that Jesus gives of Himself is, is extremely unique, not in terms of the Scriptures, because these are images that are used elsewhere, but that this is the first time in the seven churches of Asia that Jesus uses a description that He did not use of Himself in chapter You'll notice in the first five letters that he gives, each of those descriptions is part of this magnificent imagery that Jesus is described concerning in chapter 1 with the, the white hair and the flowing robes and the sash and the flaming eyes. All of those images are there in chapter 1. This time is the first time that Jesus does not refer to himself with one of those images. Instead, he uses a couple of different images that has not been seen in Revelation yet. He describes himself in verse 7 as the Holy One and as the True One. And these are Messianic titles. These are Messianic images. And you can see that in the Gospel accounts how Jesus applied those images to Himself. In fact, one of the Scriptures that I have up there is one of the demons describing, I know who you are. You are the Holy One. You're the One. We know who you are. You're the Messiah. And so Jesus is taking those titles upon Himself and say, I'm the Messiah. I am the one. Here I am. I am writing this letter to you. The second image is also fascinating because he says that I have the key of David. 
And that's somewhat unusual because we don't see that kind of imagery a lot in the Scriptures. In fact, if you were to go do a word study on key or keys, you won't find keys too often. It's a pretty rare phenomenon. And you can probably think of the few places that they're at. Here, Matthew 16, 18, where you have the confession with Peter. And then you also have in the Old Testament, Isaiah 22 and verse 22 is pretty much where this imagery comes from. If I could keep you till 12, I'd go ahead and do a side study on Isaiah 22. For fear of things being thrown, I'll give you the summary and what we'll talk about. Isaiah 22 is simply describing a transfer of power in the kingdom. You have the one who is the king. He has a man who is second in charge called Eliakim. And so the king of Israel is saying about Eliakim, he's the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. And so that means that he carries authority. He carries power. He has control over the kingdom. And that's the imagery that Jesus is using when he talks about he possesses the key is that he is the one who has authority over his kingdom and so here is the Messiah the holy the true one and he has all authority he is the one who possesses control that leads into now a description about what's going on to the church in Philadelphia You will notice in verse 8, he says, I know your works. Now, when he said that to the previous church in the first six verses, that wasn't a good thing. He said, I know your works. And then he went about tearing them apart for all the things that they had done wrong. And there was nothing good that was said of that congregation. Here is the exact opposite. This time he says, I know your works, but there's no condemning in any of this uh, section where he writes to this church. He is speaking to them and says, these are good things that I know the works that you have done. I know what you have accomplished. Verse 8, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. A couple of things that are intriguing about what is stated here about these Christians. First, consider that it says that they have little power. A lot of head-scratching there. What does that mean? Why do they have little power? What is this talking about, about this church in Philadelphia? What is that describing? Uh, Probably a couple of things. It probably indicates that they are smaller in number than perhaps the other congregations in Asia Minor. And probably also just describing the influence that they are wielding within that area. And he says, I know you're small. I know you have little power. I know that you don't have uh, the strength that perhaps others have, but he commends them anyway and says, but I know what your works. I know what you're doing. I understand the work that you are doing, how you have not denied my name, that you have been faithful to me. And so verse 8 continues to lay out to them this great blessing that they have been faithful despite the fact of their small influence or small number. And I think that's an important reminder for us to stop on just for a moment is to remember that that faithfulness is the most important thing. That we can do a lot of things to try to grow a congregation that are not faithful means to becoming what God wants us to be. And that we have to be concerned and considering the fact that God wants us to be faithful. And there's no condemnation here to say, well, you're small and so I'm not really pleased with you. No, you're faithful even though you are small. 
Because we live in a society now that is really quite enthralled with the, the megachurches. Uh, there's almost been a backward reaction back off of that. I think people are starting now to hate megachurches for a while there. That was quite the invoke thing, was to have tens of thousands of thousands all piled in one building. Now we're going multi-site and we're having smaller groups all by video all over the place. Uh, so you see kind of a reaction away from that. But there's kind of the general feeling that, well, they must be of God because... There's 5 million people piled into that building, and so they must be the people of God. And I think it's useful to see here that in the Scriptures we see enormous churches like the Jerusalem church, which is bounding multitudes upon multitudes. But there's also a church like Philadelphia that's as small and little in power, and yet it's doing everything that God wants them to do. And so it's a reminder that numbers are only part of the story, that faithfulness certainly means that we will be reaching the lost, that we will be bringing people in, that we will be teaching them. But faithfulness also means we will do things according to the Word of God, and we will not shift the tactics just to make sure that we have numbers. We will do what God has called us to do. You see the picture continues in verse 8 with the first half there. I have set before you an open door. In verse 7, he used it both directions. He says, I can open a door that no one shuts and I can shut the door that no one opens. Notice, he doesn't tell them, I've shut the door that no one opens. That would be a bad thing. Okay, Philadelphia, I've closed the door. You're not coming in. No, it's the opposite. I have the door open and nobody's going to close that door. You're going to be able to come in to the kingdom of God. And I think that is the picture of what verse 8 is driving at. When we keep it in context with verse 7, where Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, I am the Holy and True One, and I am the One who possesses authority and power and control over this kingdom. And then He turns to them and says, And behold, before you I have the open door. You have opportunity to enter into the kingdom of God. You have the ability to do that because I have the right and the power and the control to determine that as to who will be part of my kingdom and who will be joined with me. And this is imagery that's found throughout the Gospels. Jesus used this in a couple of different ways. He spoke of it first of Himself in John 10 and verse 7 when He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here you have the same pictures. Jesus is the entry point into the kingdom of God. It is only through Jesus that one is going to find eternal life. It is only through Jesus that one is going to find God. That sounds obvious. That probably puts you to sleep. But we have to say that a lot more in our society because right now we're in a world that says any way you want to gets you to God. Whoever you like, whoever you pick, whatever way you want to be, that's what just you'll find God. Just find your way. Here you have in Revelation 3, no, I'm the one who opens the door to the kingdom that no one shuts. And I shut and no one opens. Nobody else has control over this but Christ. And Jesus said the same thing while He was on the earth. I'm the door. Yeah, there's other people who pretended to be something, but they're robbers and thieves. They're liars. Only Christ is the way 
into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said that similarly in Luke 13, not describing Himself particularly, but just describing the way in which people would go in. Are there, will there be, uh, are those who were saved be few? And Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That this was not going to be an easy pursuit. This is not just simply everybody comes in. It must be those who seek after Christ only through Jesus. Now, I say all that, and I don't think that's the point that Jesus was getting at. But I think that's a very important point that's being driven at here that so often Jesus used in describing who He is and His relevance that it is through Him that we enter the kingdom of God. But remember that Jesus is writing this letter to people who are already Christians. He's writing to these Christians here in Philadelphia, and they're not off the mark. Remember, there's no uh, condemnation that's given to them. But I want you to see that what you have, I think, is a contrast with what is happening in verse 9. In verse 9 he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It sounds like here's what took place. Here are these Christians. They've been engaged in the synagogue. We see that in the book of Acts. One of the primary ways that Christians were teaching the world was to go into the synagogues and teach them on every Sabbath. It sounds like they've been thrown out, just like what we read about earlier over in chapter 2. The church in Smyrna had the same problem where we read about a synagogue of Satan there. People who are claiming to be the people of God, but they're really not. The same thing is happening here. Here is the synagogue. They say they're the people of God. Jesus says, I know your works. They're liars. They're not the people of God. And it sounds like they have suffered from that. And that's what verse 9 is describing. And a role reversal is going to take place. Well, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn how I have loved you. Well, the implied is, well, you've had suffering from them. They've thrown you out and said you are nothing. And so what will happen is they will see that I love you. You're the people of God. You're my true disciples. You're the faithful ones. They're a synagogue of Satan. And so do not be thrown by that. And so what Jesus is doing is giving them some security here and telling them that their salvation and their participation in the kingdom of God was not altered by the things that they were suffering, by the things that were happening to them, that they could have been rejected and persecuted and cast out and deal with all of those difficulties as we've been reading about in these seven churches of the tribulations and the hour of trial that's coming upon them, as we're going to read about in verse 10 in just a moment, that you're going to have all of this trouble, but you're still the people of God. That where you stand with God does not change even though you have all sorts of different experiences of things happening against you in your life. That's the power of what verse 8 is saying when he writes to these Christians and tells them there's an open door in your midst and no one's going to shut it. 
It doesn't matter what happens all around you. It doesn't matter if they're persecuting you. It doesn't matter if they're throwing stones at you. It doesn't matter if you're rejected by the city, if you're rejected by that synagogue. That doesn't matter because you're in the kingdom of God. That door is open and nobody's closing that door. They can say that you're not in the kingdom of God. They can do all sorts of things to you, but rest assured that you are part of of God's people receiving His inheritance and in His kingdom. And that's a, a picture of tremendous blessing, especially when we know the direction of what's going to transpire in the book of Revelation. And we read about the persecutions that they're presently dealing with and how things are going to get worse. If you've been with us in the Sunday night study of Revelation, you will recall Revelation chapter 6 where we see the picture of the souls of the saints, the people of God crying out, how long until you judge? How long until there's justice? And the statement is somewhat positive, but somewhat discouraging. They're given white robes, a picture of victory, a picture of overcoming, but they're told to rest a little longer until the full number of their servants are killed, that more are going to die. And so it is a reminder here to the letter to the Philadelphian church. It doesn't matter how difficult things happen in your life. It doesn't matter what you experience. It doesn't matter if you're suffering. It doesn't matter if you're persecuted. That that does not change where we stand in the kingdom of God. I hope that is something that it will take away as one of our points to ignite our zeal is that important reminder. Is sometimes circumstances in our lives is what causes us to pull away from God. When things are tough, when things are difficult, when things do not go the way we suspect that they ought to go, often that's what causes us to say, well, where is God? I I must not be in favor with Him, or He's left me, or why are things happening like this? And here is a reminder that we are not to look at our external circumstances in the things of this world as a test to determine if we're in God's grace and in His kingdom. Because otherwise, these Christians in the book of Revelation are shown to go through quite a bit of peril, persecution, suffering, and even death for the cause of Christ. We must remember that bad times, suffering, difficulty, persecution, rejection, these are not indicators that God is with us or against us. And that's a point that I think we need to not only remind ourselves, but we really need to tell the world about. We are presently in a world that says, if you're with God, look at all the things that are going to happen to you. One of the most popular teachers out of Houston, Texas is Joel Osteen. And his main message is, if you'll just come to God, that will fix everything in your life. You'll be able to pray to God and you'll have a parking place in the front row. And I kid you not, he wrote that. And it's like, um, how do you reconcile that theology with these poor Christians right here who have no condemnation in the slightest? And yet verse 10 says you're going to endure the hour of trial. Verse 9 says you're suffering at the hands of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're the people of God or not. How do you reconcile that? 
You cannot. We must remember that good times or bad times does not define if we're in the kingdom of God or not. And so, to put upon that in a different way, it doesn't matter what happens to us, you remain in God's kingdom. I like how Paul worded it over in Romans chapter 8. I'd like to read it with you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. Notice what the Apostle Paul teaches there. As he wraps up really a glorious section about the blessings that are found in Christ. If I had another 30 minutes and we kept you till 12.30, I would go ahead and do chapters 5-8 through 8 and remind you, of, look at all the great blessings that we have in Christ. But he concludes all that in verse 31 when he says there, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And I like the the implicit of that. If anybody tries to say anything against your salvation or your faith or say, no, you're really not the people of God, all right, well, who's going to bring such a charge? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Just to stop there for a second. That's the picture of Him being the holy and true one who holds the key. He's the one in charge of this whole matter. Not me. Not this church. Not anybody. He's the one who's determining who's in His kingdom. Who is the faithful people of God. That's His determination. He's the one who's doing that. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Notice the answer that Paul gives in verse 36 is, as it is written, you will have your cake and eat it too, and being a Christian will be wonderful. No. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will any of these things separate us? No. And verse 36 is, and good thing because we're dying for the cause of Christ. Good thing that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ because we are suffering because of our love for Him. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. May you underline that? There is nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. It doesn't matter what we endure. It doesn't matter what happens to us. It doesn't matter what we may have to suffer. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That is just awesome picture. And that's what he's trying to tell these Philadelphians. I have the key. I have the door open. And nobody's closing the door. You're in God's kingdom. And so that is the picture that he leaves them with because verse 10 is unfortunate some of the words that he now has to tell them. He doesn't tell them it's going to be easy and wonderful to be a Christian. He's describing the difficulty in verse 10. You've kept my word about patient endurance. 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I hope you will come back tonight. Tonight is looking at Revelation 7, the 144,000, which is a whole popular thing unto itself that we'll get to talk about. But besides that point, there's a discussion about the people of God being sealed. What does that mean? Because it's being told to them here in verse 10, you're going to be kept from the hour of trial that's coming on. Does that mean that they're not going to suffer in the slightest? Well, no, because in the last verse he just told them they already were. And in fact, remember the other congregation that was has no condemnation there, that, that church of Smyrna, he told them they were going to die. He says, be faithful to death, you're going to suffer. And so he's talking about something bigger than just simply your physical life. He tells them that he's going to keep his faithful followers, but that doesn't mean that they're not that they're going to be immune from suffering. I don't know where the religious world went off the rails with this, with this idea that if you're with God, you will not have any difficulty. To each of these churches now, we have gone through six of them at this point. And all six, he's told them, you're going to suffer. You're going to have hard times. Walking with the Lord is not going to be easy. But the promise that is being given to them is not that their physical lives will be spared, not that they will not suffer physically, not that they're going to live however they want to live and be alive as long as they think they want to be alive. Remember what he told that church of Smyrna in verse 11 of chapter 2, you will not be hurt by the second death. And what we spent time there needs to be brought out one more time here, a reminder that God devotes His energy, His power, and His grace to save us from the second death, not the first. God has spent all of His efforts and has sent His Son not to keep you from going through hard times in this world. He sent His Son so that you will not suffer at the second death, that you will not be eternally separated from God. That's the most important thing. And so often we have our focus squarely on suffering in this present world. And Christ is saying, take your eyes off of that and see what is more important. Look at what God has done to ensure that you can be a child of His, that you can be in His kingdom, and that nobody can take that away from you. Even if you do suffer. Even if you are rejected. Even if you are in distress. Even if you suffer death. Nothing, nothing, nothing can take away from you that you are in God's kingdom, that you have the love of Christ, and that you are His child. And that's what verses 11 and 12 conclude with. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have that no one may seize your crown. Verse 11, seize your crown. What a great picture there. Ruling with Him, authority given. You are in Christ's kingdom. And then notice in verse verse 12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. That imagery is pretty easy. You can get it yourself. If you are a pillar within the building, can you take the pillar out? No. You're holding the thing together. 
That's the picture that's being given here. You and I, dear Christians, those who are following Christ, He says, you are a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall He go out of it. It is a picture of security. It is a picture of permanence. It doesn't matter what happens in this life. You are in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what people do to you. You are in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter what we may suffer. You are in God's kingdom. And that is the picture that Paul was explicitly stating is that we cannot be removed from His kingdom, that we cannot be separated from His grace. And the rest of it continues, and I will write on Him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Did you see all the names that are given there? The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. We're all getting new names. If you didn't like your name growing up, good. You're going to get a new name. It's a picture of ownership. You say, you're God's. You are a faithful follower. You're never going to be taken out of God's kingdom. You're not going to be separated from Him. In fact, you are owned by Him. And so you put those pictures together. Security, permanence, ownership. You are Christ and you are secure in Christ. You are in His kingdom. You are a child of God. And there's nothing that anybody can do to change that. And that's a great blessing for those Christians and for us because it reminds us of one very important thing. It simply comes down to will you decide to follow Jesus or not? That's all it boils down to. Nobody can do anything to separate you from Christ. Not even Satan can separate you from Christ. It is up to you to decide Do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and want to devote yourself to Him and follow Him faithfully and do everything He says to the best of your ability? It is that decision that is being described here that these are the true people of God that it doesn't matter through thick and thin, through suffering, through good times, through bad times, they're going to serve the Lord because they have their eyes on a greater prize. They will not be harmed by the second death. That they are pillars in the kingdom of God. That they are joined with Christ. That they will live with Him eternally. And so, it doesn't matter what we may suffer. It doesn't matter how bad things may be. God's with you. And you can always be with Him. And no one can pull you out of that relationship. No one can destroy it. And no one can take that away from you. And that's the invitation we're giving you this morning is to come to Jesus. To come to Him deciding you're going to serve Him with all of your heart. That's all that's left. Once you are joined with Him and you are serving Him and you are following Him with all of your heart, you're joined with Him. And it doesn't matter if you suffer. It doesn't matter if you experience death. It doesn't matter if you're distressed. It doesn't matter if you're persecuted. It doesn't matter if you're rejected. You're in the kingdom of God. I hope that will be I hope that will be a life-changing blessing for you each day this week. To think about all the things you have to put up from Monday through Friday and all the ridicule you might ever have for being a Christian, 
for studying the Word of God on your lunch break, for trying to bring people to services, for trying to teach them about the Word of God, and for all that you might ever endure and have to deal with because you are a Christian, that you can look at the text like this and say, but none of that matters because I have a guaranteed relationship with my Father through Jesus Christ. And we want you to have that same relationship, to decide today to turn away from your sins, to confess Him as the Lord, that He is the Son of God, who you will submit to and follow with all of your heart, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And in that begins relationship with Him. And as long as you're choosing Him, what a great picture. A pillar in the temple of our God. Security and permanence and ownership with Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a song, and when we stand and sing that song, we invite you to come forward and say that I need to follow Jesus. Or you can let somebody here next to you know that that's your decision that you want to make, or let me know as well. The water is ready. Everything is prepared. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?